You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 92. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net or hit us up on the Slack channel and find Joe and send them to him. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net where you can find uh, all all our uh, social links there at the top of the page. And with that, uh, I'm... Wait, hold on. I'm Mylon Underwood. (laughs) I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. All right. So uh, as always, let's start off this episode with saying thanks to uh, everyone who left us a review. So we greatly appreciate that. So from iTunes... We have uh, Rick Walter and Nikolai Yankovic. Yeah, and just want to mention real quick before we um, well before Alan and uh, John Galloway uh, dive into things here that um, you can catch me at Tampa Co- uh, Code Camp coming up on October twentieth. So if you're in the uh, West Coast of Florida area uh, around Tampa, St. Pete, then uh, you should come up and try to kick me in the shins. But good luck because I'm faster than I look. <laughs> yeah, and with that, uh, you might be guessing like, hey, where's Alan? He sounded a little different uh, when he announced himself, and that's because this is going to be a special presentation of the talk that Alan gave at uh, Microsoft Ignite along with John Callaway from Six Figure Dev. And, uh, you know, Joe and I are just here to entertain you in the meantime. Yeah, and if you're not subscribed to their show, you should definitely check it out. I think they were one of my tips of the week uh, a couple episodes back, a lot lot of episodes back now. But uh, it's a really great show, and you should check it out. It's a Six Figure Developer. You're listening to Coding Blocks and the Six Figure Developer. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app. Visit us at codingblocks.net or sixfigure.dev.com. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood from Coding Blocks. And I'm John Calloway from the Six Figure Developer Podcast. All right. And in this episode, we're doing something a little bit special. We're coming to you from Microsoft Ignite's event right now. And we're going to be talking about Azure Functions, Cosmos DB, and focusing on writing your applications and leaving the infrastructure to somebody else to deal with. So I think first we kind of want to give a thanks to Microsoft for having us down here at Ignite, right? It's, it's kind of a pretty big deal. They've got over 700 deep dive sessions going on, a hundred self-paced workshops. They have demos that you can watch, things that you can touch, keynotes from people like Saudi and Nadella. They have Paul Therott right outside the door here recording uh, a session right now, and of course you get tons of swag, which I think John, you might have you might have gathered a little bit. Yeah, I've uh, I've got t-shirts stuffed in every pocket of my laptop bag, ready to to go home with a brand new wardrobe. Uh, you're gonna have like banners flying out the side of your car on the way home. Yeah, and don't don't forget thirty thousand of our closest friends joined us at at MS Ignite this week. Yeah, pretty big deal, and, and it's pretty awesome. It's it's a massive event, so. I guess let's go ahead and jump into the meat of this thing. And the first question is, what are Azure Functions? You want to give it a shot? Uh, So Azure Functions are just um, little bits of code that have a small responsibility. Uh, So it's a a way of standing up some functionality that may be utilized or or used by a variety of different services or applications. And uh, you don't necessarily have to worry about the infrastructure. Right. And that's kind of the, the key part right there. You don't, you don't provision any servers. You don't patch any servers. There's none of that. You write your code and it just runs. And, and, and it's a really cool thing. And the part of it that a lot of people probably want to take advantage of is the fact that it scales on demand. And by that, that, that really means that you're not going out there and turning any dials or anything. They have some simple heuristics that, that do that, that, that make it happen for you. And, and another cool part, at least to me, is they support just a ton of different languages. So they have their standard ones that are like C Sharp, JavaScript, and I can't remember what the other like standard one is off the top of my head. I've probably got the notes further down. But they've also got a ton of other ones, PHP, Python, which, I mean, what's your, what's your flavor of choice? Um, my flavor of choice these days is, of course, going to be .NET, C Sharp. Okay, cool. Um, so... I guess the the big thing here is why should you care? Like, why is why are Azure Functions a thing? Uh, something else to add to the resume, right? 
<laughs> I, I suppose that's always true. The, there's no doubt there. The the other thing too is they, if you've not played with cloud or you haven't ever really jumped into the cloud and you feel like cost is a barrier or just you don't know where to start. For me, these are a perfect way to jump in because they're dirt cheap. Like, as a matter of fact, when you get up there, we'll get into the cost later, but it, it's just one of those things that for pennies a month, you can go in and start doing something useful. Yeah, and, and they can, you know, like Alan said, they can be extremely useful and, and a way to go ahead and deploy something that the rest of your application can utilize. Uh, you don't have to worry about scale issues. You don't have to worry about if uh, if you've got something wrong, it's going to bring down an entire infrastructure or entire application. Uh, if you need to make changes, then you're just redeploying, making some changes, some small changes on, on particular functions and just quickly redeploying. Yep. And and I, I'm sure you've heard the term microservices. It's It's sort of been a buzzword for a while. Yep, I've got it on uh, Square B1 on my bingo card. <laughs> Very nice. So the thing is, is, is people talk about microservices, and one of the things that we've mentioned in previous Coding Blocks podcasts is that's great and all, but the problem with it typically is there's a lot of additional things that developers have to worry about or, or infrastructure people have to worry about because it's not like that stuff comes for free, Right. You have to you have to figure out how to scale the thing up. How are you going to provision your servers or your clusters or whatever? This allows you to do it without thinking about any of that. Yeah, and on on Six Figure Developer Podcast, we had uh, Richard Roger in episode fifty six come on and talk about microservices. So if, uh, if anyone missed that one, we give a shout out to him and and be sure to to listen to what he had to say on the topic. Excellent. And, and like I said, the other thing about this is you can worry about your application, your business logic, your line of business applications. You write things that are meaningful to your business, and you let the other stuff be, be worried and fussed about from somebody else. So uh, one of the cool things, so you said that C-sharp is kind of your flavor, right? Yep. A huge announcement here at Ignite is that Azure Functions 2.0 is now live. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Azure Functions 2.0 is now uh, GA and uh, was announced during Monday's keynote or secondary yeah. keynote. Yeah. Um, forgot if it was Satya or 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 the Goo uh, that, that mentioned that. Um, but that's generally available. Now that brings out um, .NET Core features that uh, previously you had to adhere to .NET Standard. Uh, so we're, we're now up to the latest and greatest bits. That, it's amazing. And that along with it brings the fact that you can now run this on Mac, you can run it on Linux, you can run it in Windows. Um, you now can use Azure Functions in Kubernetes, which is really cool. Uh, you can use Azure Functions on the IoT Edge. It's way faster than version 1, from what they're saying. Like I, I don't know that they had statistics out on this, but I know they were talking about .NET Core 2.1 earlier, and it was... It was like an order of magnitude faster, like one and a half times faster. So I don't know if that completely translates to this, but pretty big deal. And the other thing that they have here that's interesting, if you've ever played with Azure Functions, there can be a problem sometimes bringing in dependencies because they sort of step on each other. With this version 2.0, they now load their own context, meaning that there's going to be less conflicts to deal with. And we'll actually have a link to this to this release Um page that they put together it'll talk a little bit more about this so uh you want to you want to give us a little overview of how you actually use some azure functions yeah so depending on how you've architected your application and what you're trying to accomplish with with your functions there are a variety of ways that you can uh trigger the functions or, or kick off the function to to do their little bit of work uh there could be http triggers so you can call directly and say hey it's it's now your turn to go do the thing um, you can also have a, a timer so that you know at once an hour you can kick off a function to maybe import some data or, or massage some data or whatever the case may be. Um, you can you can put something on a queue or like a, a service bus or, or uh, service bus topics something like that. Um, a variety of different ways. Yeah, I mean they they have a whole slew of them, but basically if you can think of ways to get information into Azure, such as blob storage, event hubs, Cosmos DB, IoT, whatever, they have these hooks and these bindings that are built in so that so that you can kind of kick these things off however works best for your for your flow. So pretty pretty awesome stuff. 
Um, most okay. So this is where I actually had it in the notes. I knew I had it in there. So C sharp and JavaScript were at least in version one, like the the top dogs with with F sharp also. And then they had what they called experimental support. And in here, I'll just list them real quick. You had Bash, Batch, PHP, PowerShell, Python, and TypeScript. And I wouldn't be surprised if in version two, they've got more. Yeah, and during one of the sessions, uh, I think maybe one of the pre-day sessions, they had mentioned that there was support for some of these languages. I know that uh, Python was one in particular that they mentioned, uh, but it was marked as experimental. And uh, there were some, some pitfalls with trying to write an Azure function with Python. But now that 2.0 is generally available, um, they I think they've rewritten their Azure function um, bits uh, so that now you can utilize uh, every everything that your uh, Python developer knows and loves. Oh, very nice. Did they say what the, the fall or the drawbacks in V1 were? Like the kind of things that would happen? Uh, I, I think they did. Uh, I think I might have tuned out by that point. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's definitely information overload, so um, that's, that's not surprising. So I thought it would be useful because initially John and I started to put together an application in Azure, and then we found out that we weren't actually going to be showing anything, and we were only going to be talking about things. So I think what's more useful is to talk about some of the best practices and things that will put you in a good, a good position to be successful with Azure Functions um, because they really are awesome. They're, they're exciting to talk about, and they're exciting to play with. So one of the first things that I found was you'll see all over the place they say avoid a long running function. But they fail to say what a long running function is, right? Like to me, I was worried about it's running longer than 30 seconds. Is that a problem? It seems from what I saw on the internet and various different issues posted places, five minutes is a cutoff. So if it runs for five minutes, it's probably going to kill it and go off into no man's land. Yeah, I did stumble across it some sort of documentation site on the Microsoft domain. Uh, so I'll see if I can find that again. But it, it did uh, explicitly call out the, the five-minute mark. Okay, cool. I, I don't think I ever saw anything official, but it, it seemed to be what just kept piling up. Um, there's another thing that we're not going to dive into here because it's it's kind of a subset or or a uh, yeah subset of Azure Functions, and it's called Durable Functions. So they also allow for cross-function communication using built-in bits in Azure. Uh, I want to mention it because it's worth looking into if you start developing some of these things and you find that you're going further. Um, one of the key points for me, and this is big, that you have to understand is there's only so much data you can send to an Azure function. So by default, the, the storage size that gets set in is 64 kilobytes. So if it's bigger than that, then you have to find ways to work around it. So like, like for instance, one of them is you can, instead of calling that function directly and trying to pass in like 128 kilobytes of, of data, instead of that, you could put that stuff on a storage blob somewhere and then have a trigger that kicks that thing off and, and it can go pick up that data from the storage blob and use it. So it can go get data that's bigger than 64 kilobytes, but it can't take in more than that. Yeah, and that's, that's probably a, a good architectural choice anyway. That instead of saying, oh, here's this terabyte of data that I need to send to this function, why don't we figure out how to get that into storage of some kind and then tell the function that it's, it's time for it to go ahead and do its job? Are you saying a developer would actually try and send a terabyte of data to a function? Uh, we, we, we tend to do some crazy things sometimes. Yeah. If you leave the door open, right, that's what's going to happen. If, if it can happen, it absolutely will. Yeah. So another one of the best practices for Azure Functions is to write them to be stateless. And and this is where a lot of people are going to scratch their heads who haven't dealt with microservices and that kind of things before, you know. So if basically what that means is this thing shouldn't really rely on it, it needs to rely on as little as possible. But if you need to use something that's going to maintain state, then you're going to try and put the state on the data is what they said. So it, it's an interesting concept, right? Like if, if you get a data packet that comes into this thing, then probably what you want to do, if there's some sort of state you need to maintain, add it into that data and then save it off somewhere. And then that way, the next time something needs to pick it up and run, it's got that state available on the data itself. Right. Yeah, and you, you want to write the function so that it's idempotent. 
so that it will return the same value with the same inputs. Yep. I always love that word. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that haven't taken CS and they're like, item potent. What? <laughs> Just another thing I got to look up. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to put the definitions of, of these funky terms on the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Um, here's another one. And, and I think this is good practice regardless. It is super more important for things like Azure Functions or microservices is write defensive functions. You, you want to fill us in on what that is? Yeah, so you want to plan for failures at each step. You want to make sure that you can recover from those things that happen uh, from time to time. Like Like we said... If it can happen, it will. So we want to make sure that we can recover from any particular failure or any uh, weird side effect that, that we might need to account for. Yeah, and, and what that means is it needs to be able to pick up where it left off, right? Like if you have an order from a customer and you're leveraging something like Azure Functions or microservices, you don't want it to insert that order. You know, if it failed 10 times, you don't want it to create 10 new orders because you're going to be in a mess, Right. So you need to make sure that every step of any kind of transaction type thing that happens, you have some sort of fail safe so that it, it can pick up and continue where it left off. Um, so this is the whole part of don't have it redo work. Try and figure out a way to not do that. Yeah, n- know about poison cues and how to use them. Yeah, this was interesting. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. But basically what it boils down to is if things fail multiple times, there's something built into the Azure architecture that knows that this is a problem and, and it'll identify it in the queues for you or in the Azure function. So really, really neat stuff and, and it's nice to know about. Um, also know about how the function scaling works and we'll get into that in a minute. So uh, we'll do a little deep dive on that. Oh, and so I guess, uh, actually, we're going to get into it right now. So well, one of the things is we're going to talk about using the consumption plan. So there's other plans that you can use. I think there's a resource plan where basically if you have servers set up already in Azure, it can use their free processing to run Azure Functions. We're going to talk about the plan that says, hey, just charge me when this thing's being used, right? Don't use anything that exists already. Um yeah, so if we never actually trigger the function, then I don't want to have to pay a penny. Right, which is mostly true, and we'll get into that in a second, um, it, but it's that's essentially the gist of it. So here's what they have, and this is kind of cool. The CPU and the RAM scale up automatically for you, up to 1.5 gigs of RAM, which is a significant amount of RAM. And so you'll have to plan accordingly, right? Like if you're typically trying to load your entire product database into memory, this you're going to have to figure out ways to go around this, right? Um, but it is nice to know that, that they at least tell you what the caps are. Um, this is another thing. So the function apps that share the same consumption plan, they scale independently. So if you have two or three function apps that you've deployed, they're each going to scale on their own. You don't have to worry about, well, this one's using the resources and this is using more. They'll all do what they need to do to run uh, effectively. So if you've got three different functions and one of them needs to scale up, then you don't automatically have to scale the other two? It does, you don't have to. You, have, you don't really have any choice over it. That's, that's kind of, I guess it's the good and the bad of this, right? Again, you're not worrying about the infrastructure pieces and how all that stuff orchestrates. But, yeah, if you have one function that's getting hit heavily that one will scale up for you and the other two will just do whatever they need to do. Um, so the, now here's one thing that is kind of interesting. And this is where I said that, you know, if the function never fires, then, then cost. Okay. So here's what happens when you write your function, it's got code, right? So depending on how big your code base is, whatever the files themselves are stored in your function storage. So you're going to pay for your storage. For me, for what we've done, like the, the code that we've put up there, it's like a couple pennies a month. Like it's, it's almost nothing. So assuming you don't even, you never run that function, you're going to pay a couple pennies a month for the storage because that's where your files are, but that's it. All right. So if you've got your own MSDN subscription and you're paying a monthly fee anyway, you're, you're probably not going to eat up the, no. your, your monthly allotment, right? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you look at it and you'd be like, wow, that's really cheap. So it's a nice way to get started. Um, next up, we got... Okay, so this is a gotcha. We mentioned the different 
triggers that you have. So you have the HTTP webhook that's basically, you just call a URL and it fires off. You have a timer that you can set. Basically, it's a cron schedule is what you can put on a timer. So, you know, one minute, 24 hours, whatever you want to do. Those fire off pretty quickly, right? Like as soon as you call them or as soon as that time hits, they do. If you're using blob storage as a trigger, there can be a delay up to 10 minutes for the blob. Now, this has something to do internally with how they have their stuff set up. So it's not that it's never going to run. It's just not going to happen immediately. So if you're getting ready to plan out, you're like, oh, I want to go play with Azure Functions. Just know about that, right? It it, it would kind of stink if you're sitting there waiting and nothing happens. So if you're constantly hitting refresh, waiting for that trigger to have fired, you might be disappointed. Right, for for 10 minutes or for up to 10 minutes. So, um, But just be aware of it. Uh, now, they did say there is a way around this, and that's to have an app service plan with always enabled turn on. And basically what they said is when these triggers fire, they spin up the functions, right? And the blob trigger storage, I guess, is a more relaxed one, and so it's not in the always on mode. So if you want to force it, you can do that. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of consumption and all that kind of stuff. If it costs more, I didn't see anything on that. But, you know, uh, fair warning. All right, what do we got next? So, okay, this is, this is where the interesting stuff gets in. So we were talking about scaling earlier. And basically what it does is it will automatically scale up to the number of instances of the function that needs to meet the demand. So basically, if you've, if you've taken a look in the Azure portal and you've looked at like the app insights for something, you'll typically see like response times, right? And, and usually they're going to be pretty low, you know, under 200 milliseconds, whatever. They use what they call basically their simple heuristics. We don't know what it is, but they have something that's like a simple, a simple enough algorithm to say, okay, it looks like we need to scale this up, right? Because the request times are taking too long or the response times are, or, or whatever the case may be, it, it's taking longer than expected. It'll auto, it'll auto scale it for you to get those requests or those response times back down to a good threshold. Yeah. Could you imagine having to write some of that infrastructure yourself? Oh, my God, no. I mean, seriously. And that's the thing. That's why microservices, anytime people talk about them like it's the big buzzword, it's like, I mean, yeah, it's cool. But you have to have a real need for it typically, right? With this, it's it's just like writing any code. You don't really have to think about it. You just do it, and, and it'll do it for you. Yeah, I typically write one or two functions in a, a, a class or, or, or something uh, at least once a day. So. I'm always looking for an opportunity uh, to break that out into a reusable thing that I could go ahead and make that a, a true function function, uh, uppercase F function, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really cool. The fact that you can do it is just amazing. Now, there are some limits here. So there's no maximum number of concurrent requests a function can handle. So what that means is, as long as your function is taking in whatever's supposed to happen and and spitting it out quickly enough, it's not like it's it's serially bound, right? It, it'll just it'll issue as many requests, and it can take as many of those things as possible because it'll just parallelize them, right? So that's that's excellent to know. So it's not like you're just stacking up a queue waiting for it to happen. Um, the one thing that they mentioned, and I I'm not clear on this honestly, is they say that you have to be concerned with the number of connections being used. It said 300 is the limit, so. I don't know if that means that you have your function and it's connecting to a SQL server or it's connecting to an Azure Key Vault storage or something like that. I don't know after there's 300 instances of these functions out there if that's like your cap now. Hmm. Thoughts? (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd be interested to to look into that as well. I'm not entirely clear on what that is. So we'll we'll be sure to, to look that one up and... Uh, if anybody out there in Radio Land has has any ideas, be sure to let us know. Yeah, comment on this because I think we're planning on releasing this on both of our sites. So pick one, you know, come over and leave us a comment. I'm sure that John and I will be bouncing back and forth between the comments on the two sites. So if anybody has questions, we'll, we'll do our best to answer them. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure exactly what it means because because you don't control the scale factor. I'm guessing again, you have to really build in the defensive part of this. 
So now this is the part that is kind of exciting to me and it's probably going to be super hard to explain in any kind of way that's going to make sense. So anybody who's driving, if your brain starts melting here, I apologize. So billing is in gigabyte seconds. So what does that mean? That That is not a metric that I'm familiar with. <laughs> Mega gigabyte, son. Um, I, <laughs> so when I read this, I, I was like, okay, I don't, I don't really know how to equate this. So let me give you the definition that they say. Oh, you've got math down here. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. It's it, And I've even got a link to the page where they have it nicely drawn out, and we'll have a link in the show notes for that. I highly recommend, if you're halfway interested in this, click it. Because it'll it'll more clearly spell it out, right? But I at least want to plug it, put the seed in, and maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. So it's a combination of the memory size and the execution time of the function. So what that means is, let's get down here because I think I wrote it out a little bit. So first, first before we get into the part of the gigabytes and the and, and the seconds and all that, they give you Azure gives you a monthly grant of a million requests and 400,000 gigabyte seconds of resource consumption for free. That sounds like a lot. A million requests for free. So I, I don't know. Let's see who can do the calculator faster. Uh, if, if, you did, uh, if you did a function every minute for an entire month, what would that be? So um, what is that? 60 times 24 times 30. That's only 43,000 requests. So you still got a good ways to go before you hit that million request mark, right? Um, let's see. If you did that times 60, that's obviously going to blow out a million, right? Yeah, that's that's 2.5 million. So probably every 30 seconds, you're going to be at 100,000. Yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of room to play with things, right? Like if you had a timer that was running and firing off this thing all the time, you'd still be in pretty good shape. But even if you blew that out, I mean, that's still... Yeah, the, the math is nothing, and that's that's what I want to get into. So, so when it says the gigabyte, let's let's break that down. So, first, what it's talking about is the memory consumption of the function itself. So, by default, the functions start with a minimum of 128 megs of RAM. All right, to get your gigabyte of RAM, you're going to divide 1024 by this 128. So, let's do the. I'm sure I have this. So 1024 divided by 128 seems like it should be like 8. Okay, so that's going to be 8, right? That's going to be a multiplier. Now, if if your function took one second to complete, then that's going to be 8. It's going to be 8 times 1, right? So your, your gigabyte second is 8, all right? Then, uh, how does this thing work? Let me see. Minimum 100 milliseconds, 128 megs of RAM. All right, so then what you have to do is this gigabyte, you're going to divide it by, oh, man, what was it, the, the factor? I, I can't even remember now. Now, now my, my math's all gone. Basically, the, the example they got here is if you had somebody that was doing, oh, what was it, a million executions. No, dang it. Let me get back up here. You want you want to you want to talk while I try and find this again? You know what makes for good radio? <laughs> math is, is math. <laughs> hey, we never learn our lesson, right? All right. So, so here's what they did, right? So on their example, they had three million executions and they took a second just to make it easy. Hopefully, your Azure function is not taking a second. Depends on what you're doing. It could take longer, whatever. So you have three million seconds, right? Then they had 512 megs of RAM average used for these functions. Then you divide that by the 1024, which is your gigabytes, right? And that gave you 1.5 million gigabyte seconds, right? Because it was half times the 3 million, essentially. All right. Now you take away the 400,000 requests that you get for free, or not requests, the gigabyte seconds for free, and you're left with 1.1 million gigabyte seconds. All right. That's what you got free. Then... You multiply this, they, okay, this, this, this is where I messed up. So there's a resource cons, uh, consumption price, which is, how many zeros is that? One, two, three, four, five. All right, it's point zero 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 one six cents per gigabyte second. So you multiply that times your 1.1 million now, and you come up with $17.60. 
And then on top of that, you are going to pay for your um, per million executions. That was an extra 20 cents. All right. And at the end of the day, after all is said and done, you basically end up with $18 that you paid for 3 million executions that ran for a second each. Yeah, I could probably make, I could probably cover that. That's not terrible, right? I mean, I, I, I can imagine all kinds of useful things that you can do with that kind of processing power and time. And it's 18 bucks. I mean, some hosting costs more than that nowadays still, right? So, uh, pretty interesting. Again, we know that math makes for really super interesting radio, but hopefully you're able to follow along with that. Um, but it gives you an idea that it's you're not going to pay through the nose for this, right? And that's the big deal. Now, they didn't put in there the cost of the storage. Assuming that it's probably your standard class file and, and, and some, some code, again, it's probably a few pennies a month. It's almost nothing. Yeah, right. and, and Azure Function, by definition, should be relatively small. I would assume the code to make that thing relatively small would be small itself. You would hope so. You, you would certainly hope so. Hey, so it's that time again. If you haven't already, we got to ask you to leave us a review. It's a big help to the show. It helps us uh, doing the things that we're trying to do. And uh, if you get some value out of this, then please let us know over there at, uh, you can go to codingblocks.net slash review and you'll find uh, links to that. But you can go to like iTunes or Stitcher or uh, what a pot chaser, whatever you're familiar and comfortable with and uh, leave us that review. And we would really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. So thank you. Yeah. And don't be afraid to uh, share us with a friend, you know, spread the word. You've heard us tell you about Datadog. You know they're a software-as-a-service monitoring platform that provides developer and operation teams with a unified view of their infrastructure, apps, and logs. But did you know about these features? Like Watchdog? Watchdog automatically detects performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. By continuously examining application performance data, it identifies anomalies like a sudden spike in hit rate that could otherwise have remained invisible. Once an anomaly is detected... Watchdog provides you with all the relevant information you need to get to the root cause faster, such as stack traces, error messages, and related issues from the same time frame. Or what about trace, search, and analytics? Trace, search, and analytics allows you to explore, graph, and correlate application performance data using high cardinality attributes. You can search and filter request traces using key business and application attributes such as user IDs, host names, or product SKUs so you can quickly pinpoint where performance issues are originating and who's being affected. Tight integration with data from logs and infrastructure metrics also lets you correlate these specific trace events to the performance of the underlying infrastructure so you can resolve the problem quickly. And let's not forget about logging without limits. Logging Without Limits lets you cost-effectively process and archive all of your logs and decide on the fly which logs to index, visualize, and retain for further analytics in Datadog. Now, you can collect every single log produced by your applications and infrastructure without having to decide ahead of time which logs will be the most valuable for your monitoring, analytics, and troubleshooting. Datadog is offering our listeners a free 14-day trial, no credit card required, and as an added bonus for signing up and creating a dashboard, they will send you a Datadog t-shirt. Head to www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. Did I, man, I totally messed up in here. Like there's a few things that I left out and I think we talked about them a little bit. One of the things that, that just made me think about this, so we're going off the uh, the rails here for a second, is you said they should be relatively small, right? But let's say that you have two Azure functions sitting out there and they both utilize the same like model, the same class, right? Like let's say that you have some sort of accounting class that you typically use. One of the things that's interesting about Azure functions is if you want to share that code, there's only a couple of ways to really do it. So you've either got to set up a NuGet package that has those classes in it, which is cool. I mean, I guess that's one way to do it, right? It seems kind of weird to have to create a NuGet package just to share a class. But, you know, whatever. Um, the other thing you can do, because when you have a storage account with a function, you can actually go look at the storage account, and, and we'll get into that in a minute, and you'll see that you'll have your functions at, at a particular level, just like you would on your on your regular system, right? Like you got your C drive, you got a projects folder, and then you've got you know two or three functions listed there. You can have another folder at that same level 
that's accessible by all those other three functions. And then you can do like a, I think it's a hash load or a hash ref. I can't remember exactly right off the top of my head, but then you can reference those C sharp files or CSX files, which is really interesting because they have C sharp script apparently, which I don't know. It feels kind of dirty. You got any thoughts? Yeah. And I guess, do you want to speak about the project, the side project that we were? Sure. Sure. So, so Alan uh, had an idea for hooking into our podcast stats. Um, he's he, there. Coding Blocks is, is using one service. Six Figure Developer is using a different service, but but they have similar stats. So there were, the idea was to go in, uh, hit an endpoint, hit an API, something like that, assemble the data, and start. Um, putting it in blob storage or, or putting it in Cosmos DB and then starting to write some reports about uh, against that data. Um, but we wanted to have the ability to put it on some kind of trigger or um, some kind of time scenario that we can make sure that our, our statistics are updated pretty regularly so that we know uh, which episodes you guys like, uh, which ones are the popular ones, um, and, you know, just find out all that we can from that. So... Uh, as we were looking to write some of these these functions and and collaborate on some of this code, um, since he had a different provider than than we did, we wanted to see if we could utilize some kind of core class library functionality that would share our models, uh, share some interfaces and things like that, and then we can deploy our functions independently, our, our Azure functions independently, so that they can connect to the uh, respective APIs. Yeah, and and that's where the rub comes in is. So we're sharing the the podcast model, right? And and then that way, so every episode has its own statistics. Well, the thing that sucked is he's got his provider. I've got my provider. And to deploy those independently and try and use the same class, it was like, well, do we bake in the classes to each one of them? That seems kind of wrong. Um, and then the, and there, there were these solutions. Like I said, you can put it in NuGet for C Sharp or, or you can have this shared folder type thing. And there's some drawbacks to both, right? NuGet is, you know, that's a process that you've got to put in play. Um, the other one, if you're going to share the files, you can't just do that because if you make an update to those files, your functions aren't aware that they changed because basically they load up those files. And if there's any code changes to them, they're not aware of it, right? It, it, it built it and it's using those DLLs. So you actually have to have a file watcher um, type call or configuration in your host.json in order to know to continually watch for those files changing. So there's there's a lot of weird things with it that I'm hoping that maybe maybe with version 2 out that they have some some new things in there that make this a little bit more seamless because my whole goal when we talked about this was let's get this stuff up in we're using Visual Studio online, right? Or which is now Azure DevOps or Azure DevOps. Okay. Okay, so we've got our code up there, and the whole goal was, hey, let's have the Azure function deployed directly from our Git, right? So we make a commit to Git, go ahead and deploy that thing out. But I couldn't figure out exactly how you get that onto that separate class into another folder over there. So we hadn't spent that much time doing it, but you know, maybe we'll get back to it after all this. Yeah, I've been doing some some crazy stuff with uh, our CI/CD pipe, pipeline um, most recently for for. Uh, business work so not not this fun side side gig stuff uh, or side project stuff um so i was thinking that surely there's a way to to hook up some kind of ci cd pipeline or, or some kind of automated build where we could just have a, a release script that could deploy the independent functions and whatever they need to be whether they whether we can package them as as the complete function package and, and uh, deploy that into Azure, or if it's something where we, we do have to mess around with files and, and making sure that the, the correct versions of things are out there. Right. Yeah, it, it'll definitely be an interesting thing. Maybe we do a follow-up afterwards, like if, if we get further down. Um, I mean, it, it'd be really cool to see this thing through because I think there's a lot of useful things that, that we've learned in it and that will probably save a lot of people a lot of pain and time. So um, so that aside, that was, that was off the rails. Hopefully it was useful. The, the next thing I want to talk about is there's just a few tools that really make working in Azure a whole lot easier. So Azure's functions specifically, there's the Azure Core Tools. 
those those are really helpful, right? If you get those down, I, again, with version 2 out, it should work on Linux, Mac, and Windows. One that surprisingly doesn't pop up in a lot of places, and I don't know if you had a chance to look at this one, Azure Data Explorer. Have you seen this? I, I, I think I've played around with it or, or seen it a, a very little bit. I have not really spent enough time with it. Dude, so here's what I'll tell you. The Data Explorer, first off, it's cross-platform. So you can get it for Windows. You can get it for Mac. I've actually got it loaded on my Mac. Um, and on the Mac, it's called Microsoft Azure Storage Explorer. And here's the thing. You can hook up. You can log into your account, hook up, and it gives you a view into all kinds of things. So your Azure Function Storage, Blob Storage, Table Storage, Cosmos DB, like it's it's like this all-in-one tool to where if you're working on things and, and you're pushing things into a queue or they've even got data lake store on preview on Mac. Um, so I'm looking at it right now. And I mean, you literally have access to basically all your files that you've stuffed up into Azure somewhere. Now, that may not sound all that useful initially, but the reason it is, is if you have your function doing something like pushing data into a queue or into a blob storage so that, so that it gets picked up and processed later by something else, when you run your, your function, you can go up there and look and say, hey, did it happen, right? Is there a new file there? Is there something going on? And so instead of having to write some code to you know, stop a debugger and do all that kind of stuff, you can literally watch it live. So... If you're going to mess with Azure Functions, I highly recommend going and getting that. It's free download. Um, it's super easy to use. It's really, it's pretty intuitive. And then the other one, this might seem obvious, maybe, maybe not, but Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code, like no-brainers to me. Right. It, the surprising thing to me, and I don't know, what, what did you use when you were coding yours? Uh, Visual Studio. Okay, so you were using Visual Studio. I was on a Mac. So I was using Visual Studio for Mac, which has come a long way. But also Visual Studio Code, they've made leaps and bounds in that. Because like when this thing first started, you know, it was kind of a bare bones type deal. They've got hooks for everything now. And so it's actually a pretty decent experience if you want to do things in Visual Studio Code. So highly recommend those tools if you want to jump into it. You want to lead us into Cosmos? Sure. So, um, so Alan's idea was to to take all the data from the podcast apps or, or from the podcast and, and utilize the functions and put all of the data into Cosmos DB, um, and then we would assemble the data there and then use that as our, our data store so that we could start writing reports and, and start making sense of that information. Yep. And and the reason why Cosmos DB popped up to me really. I mean, being completely honest, it's because it's the new shiny toy. That's really what it boiled down to. But it's the fact that it's it's sold as the multi-model database, right? And I was like, well, what does that mean? You can put your relational data in here, your document storage data. Like, you know, sounds interesting. You ever played with any document DBs? A little bit, yeah. Okay. They, they, they have their place, right? Right. They don't, they don't replace relational databases, but they certainly have good good utility and functions. Yeah, and unfortunately, I've, I've come across some people using DocumentDB in a relational database fashion. It, you know, I, I don't know your thoughts on it. For me, it's less of a sin to put DocumentDB type things in a relational world than it is to try and force relational on a document database. Right. So you feel the same way? If I understand you correctly, yes. So basically, don't try and force MongoDB to be your relational database. Right. If you want to shove a JSON document into SQL Server, I'm not going to love you, but I'm not going to hate you as much. Right? That, that's basically what I'm getting at. Because SQL Server is the solution for everything. Man, he and I are going to have words. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, getting back to just this whole thing of Cosmos DB, it's globally distributed. Meaning this thing, you put data in it, it's available everywhere, right? And it's a multi-model database for any scale. Like, those are big terms. Your thoughts, are you confident? 
it, it, it is some great marketing speak. And for the most part, from, from my experience, it is absolutely true. That's, that's what I understand, too. Like, it, it's, it's super fast. So here's what they say. It offers throughput, latency, availability, and consistency guarantees with comprehensive service level agreements, SLAs, um, that no other database platform offers, period. That's, that's pretty big marketing speak. I mean, nobody. Nobody offers it. Yeah. Um, it can distribute your data to any Azure re- region with a click of a button. So when it says it's globally available, that's if you want it to be. I mean, if you don't have anybody in Europe using your data, then why have it there? Right? Yeah. yeah, keep it close to where it's going to be used. Exactly. Uh, keep it at the edge is what they say, right? Right, right. At the edge. So um, they have these, it's called multi, multi-homing APIs. And this part to me is super cool. Because what it'll do is, if you are in Europe and your data is in Europe and you're using my app, it'll automatically figure it out, right? Like that's that's pretty cool. If you're in the U.S. and you've got you've got your data over here, then it's going to see that it's going to geolocate you and say the closest data center is here. Get your data from there, get it back to you. So it's as fast as it could be, with no effort on your part. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and it seems these days that more and more people are going global. So it, it's extremely important to make sure that you're, you're giving your users, you're giving your customers the best experience possible. And if that just means moving the data closer to them, then, then so be it. Seems like a no-brainer. Um, so, yeah, no, no application changes. As long as you're using their connection APIs and all that kind of stuff, you put it in there. If you decide that, that tomorrow you're bringing Europe online, you basically say, hey, Cosmos, I, I want you in Europe. And, and it's done. Checkbox. Check. Done. Beautiful. All right. So the multi-model thing, this is what, this is probably the part that intrigued me the most, right? So it uses, now this is going to be some stuff that I'd never heard before, but I'm, you know, being honest here. It uses the Atom Record Sequence, ARS, based data model. This just means that it natively supports multiple models. I mean, that sounds good. Sounds great, right? Um, what that means is, what, what is multiple database models? We talked about document DBs. We talked, to, we talked about relational. You got anything else? Uh, looks like we've got graph. We've got key value, table, column family. Yeah, and they say others. I don't even know what the others are. But, I mean... That just means the next one tomorrow. That's right. It'll support anything. Yeah, by the way, you ever looked at graph databases? Very, very little bit. So cool, man. So cool. Um. So the number of APIs are available in multiple SDKs. They have them in several languages because they want people to adopt it. Um, so here's the interesting thing about the SQL part of this. So it's, it allows for SQL, but it's a schemaless JSON database storage with SQL querying capability. So I got to admit, I, I read that as shameless JSON database storage. <laughs> <laughs> that's who. Um, the thing here that that kind of throws me a little is your statement earlier about you know trying to force uh, a relational into a document DB type world, and it sounds like that's sort of what they're saying here. Except this natively supports the ability to query it properly. Except you're not going to be enforcing schema which may or may not be a problem for you, right? I guess it kind of depends on what your needs are. If you're looking at the scale and all that kind of stuff, then, then you got to weigh what, what's the most important to you. Yeah, the, the last large project I was working on, it was a... a can't say. No, no. Okay, good. <laughs> Backing out. No, it was it was a, a document DB and um, lots of queries being written against it, uh, SQL-like queries, uh, lots of store procedures being written against it. So really, really interesting stuff. Um, c- completely flexible. Okay. All right. So here's here's a few things, and uh, I mean I've got them bullet pointed out here, but the the key here is is the flexibility that you get. So you've got a SQL provider, you've got a MongoDB as a service, which is still all of these are running on top of Cosmos DB. It's underlying data engine, um, Cassandra. Gremlin, which is the the interface for like graph databases, and table key value storage. So, if uh, if you've ever worked with anything like DynamoDB or I'm trying to think, uh, you know some other ones off the top of your head, key value. It's it, 
it's it's really simple type stuff. They're usually typically like single index type things, but key value storage. Literally, just if you think of like a hash table, that's kind of what it is, right? Um, so it supports all these things out of the box natively and at a scale that basically nobody else can touch. Do we need it for our podcast thing? I don't know that we need it. <laughs> right, exactly. It needs definitely a strong word here. Um, but but the, the ease of implementation is another benefit, right? Definitely. So, I mean, we, we also probably don't need a relational database. No, that's a good point. We could do flat file storage, really, if you wanted to boil it down. But, but who wants to do that? Um, so the scalability of this thing, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it, it scales at per second granularity. That's crazy. Right. Per second. It's insane. Yeah, so is the longest you're going to wait is up. Oh, yep, that was it. <laughs> and then it's going to and then it's going to auto scale out for you to to meet whatever the demand was. Yeah. And storage scales transparently and automatically for you. Yep. Never have to look at it. Um, it, it says for a typical one kilobyte item, Cosmos DB guarantees end-to-end latency and reads in under 10 milliseconds. 10 milliseconds. That's guaranteed. That's one of their SLAs. Um, it index writes in under 15 milliseconds at the 99th percentile, of course, and, and that's all within the same Azure re- region. And it says the median latencies are way lower, under 5 milliseconds. Dude, that's almost faster than what you get doing local development with things. Yeah, I was hoping for under four. <laughs> Can't please everybody. Uh, uh, the high availability. What, what do we got there? We got four nines of availability, SLA for single region database accounts, and five nines of read availability on multi-region database accounts. That's pretty awesome. Tunable consistency levels, that means it allows you to choose how important your consistent reads or writes are. And you see this a lot with horizontally scaled type things. You can basically say, I need I need it to be more acid, right? Like, I, I don't want a dirty read. Or you can say, no, I have to have it, and, and I'm willing to wait for it. Um, don't worry about performance. Wait, what? Right? It's <laughs> crazy. What do you mean, don't worry about performance? That's the whole reason we're doing it. So basically what they say is you can rapidly iterate the schema of your application without worrying about the database schema or index management. They're saying that you do not index this stuff. Like, have you ever, ever fought SQL Server trying to get performance out of some tables or some joins or some any queries? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's typically just a, it's a constant go through. All right, what are you joining on? What indexes are on the table? You know, what do we need to do? What kind of indexes we need to create? Are they clustered? Are they non-clustered? Whatever. Yeah, thank goodness for Database Engine Tuning Advisor. <laughs> right? I, and if you don't know what that is, you should Google it it. it. it tells me that I need an index, and I, I believe it. Right. The only problem with that is typically what will happen is over time as you build up these things more and more and more, what you'll find is you've now got 20 indexes on the table, and some of them probably aren't even used anymore. Right. right? Um, so it's great for finding the things that need to be done, but it also can leave things behind. But yeah, I'm I'm not a DBA. I just I just play one when there's not one. <laughs> nice. So they say right here, the database engine is fully schema agnostic. It doesn't care. It automatically indexes all the data it ingests without requiring any schema or indexes, and everything it does is fast. It seems like magic. Sounds like it. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to try it. <laughs> so, um. Who's it for? Uh, podcasters. <laughs> Obviously. We yeah. need the fastest. Yeah. Any any web, mobile, gaming, IoT applications, anything that needs to handle massive amounts of data. It's That's super awesome. At global scale. So, I mean, really, really cool stuff. Dude, there's something else I left out on the Azure Functions, and I think we should talk about it now. And this is what happens when you throw together show notes super late at night. Um, so one of the reasons why Cosmos DB was interesting to me, and we talked about a little bit, is the ability to bind. So you can tell your function to bind automatically to a Cosmos DB database or to table storage or to whatever in a declarative way. So 
we've all written code that goes out and makes a connection to SQL Server or some database and then says, you know, hey, give me the connection, here's a transaction, wrap it, do all this. You don't have to do all that. You can literally, in a configuration file, say, here's my connection to this particular thing. I want you to bind to this particular table and give me the data back. That's awesome. Nice. So I uh, wanted to mention that. That's another reason why I wanted to go this route with these two things because it's, it's almost like a seamless type integration. So now let's come back to part of the reason why we even said that we wanted to go this Azure function route, and that's not having to deal with the infrastructure. So what about monitoring? Um, we should, yeah, monitoring stuff's good. <laughs> it, it's, it's probably better if, if, if your application's up and running, if, if your functions are doing things, if, if users are clicking buttons. Yeah, I agree with that. So one of the cool parts is you get the stuff built in. Like you don't have to go write your own telemetry type monitors or, or, or aggregators or anything like that. You can actually hook it in. So by default, there is monitoring built into Azure Functions and it uses the storage that comes with the account, but it's pretty limited. It doesn't have that much information. But you can also set up Azure Application Insights, which gives you tons of stuff. Like if you've seen the page, it's got the graphs and it's got all kinds of things on there. It shows you the latencies, everything. Like you don't really have to do much. Yeah, it's almost like the people that write that stuff know what you what is interesting and what is useful. And yeah. they'll, they'll go ahead and give it to you. And, and that same data that you'll see in, in the Application Insights area is going to be the same stuff that will probably drive the heuristics, right? Like the latency times and all that kind of stuff that auto scale that out. So you get that built in. Like basically it's not a problem. Now, the only thing I'll say is we talked about how cheap Azure functions were. They said that if you hook up Azure application insights to your functions and it's monitoring a lot, you can blow out your free stuff pretty quick. So be aware of that, but it's probably worth exploring and just figuring out how to dial it down. But App Insight said my function was up all month. <laughs> That's right, because it stopped reporting. Uh, all right, and then the other thing, too, is Cosmos DB for monitoring. There's, it's built in. If you go into your Azure portal and you look at the metrics tab, you choose the database you want to look at, and it gives you everything. So, I mean, that's pretty sweet. I mean, you ever gotten a call saying that the application's down? Uh, only between the hours of 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. <laughs> that seems to be what is popular. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice knowing that stuff's built in. And with app, Azure Application Insights, you can hook in notifications, you know, have it text you, wake you up at 2.30 in the morning. Um, but, yeah, man, that stuff's all there. It's usually best if the thing that wakes me up at 2 in the morning is not actually human. <laughs> I, I, I agree and subscribe to that thought. Actually, I'm not really good at 6 in the morning either. So, um, so we've got a few resources we like. We'll have some links in the show notes to that. Um, I mean, that kind of that kind of wraps up our talk on what we wanted to get out there. I mean, hopefully this this gives you some insight into why you'd want to use Azure Functions, what Cosmos DB would truly be useful for, be, besides just being awesome for collecting podcast stats. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I want to hear from people out there. What what are you doing? Are you doing this in your, your day-to-day business? Or are you playing with this on the side? What are... What are some fun and useful things to, to do with these tools? Yeah, I totally agree. You know what's funny? When I first heard about Azure Functions, it's probably been about a year or two ago, the use case that I heard about was literally a lady that was doing, um, she was doing a lot of data transformations, some ETL loading, and she was using Azure for everything initially, it, like the, the tools built for like SQL Server trans, doing the ETL on that. And she said it was way cheaper using Azure Functions. So she would push data into a function, have it do the transform, and then push it to wherever it needed to be. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool use case. So if you can think of a use case, just make it happen. But SQL Server is the answer to everything. Oh, man, is it? Um, hey, hey, so I can put you on the spot here. Have you found or have you heard anything at Ignite that you thought was really awesome so far that we should share other than, other than these things? There, there has been a lot of information, um, and I'll admit I've, I've been sitting in the back of some rooms and, and trying to get some work done, uh, so I just kind of uh, let my ears 
pick up the the keywords, the buzzwords that I think are most interesting. So I'm, I've, I've flagged a couple of uh, of the sessions that I want to go back and review. Um, you know, all all kinds of, of offerings in Azure that I haven't yet really played with that I, I really wanted to to pick up and, and do a little bit deeper dive in. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Azure is definitely a big keyword here, uh, no question. Um, I think for me. It's been some of the uh, orchestration, like the AKS, um, so Azure Kubernetes services and things like that. Just uh, there was a presentation given. I think uh, I don't remember which company. It might have been Xerox, but they were talking about how they took an application that used to take 24 hours to spin up at a new customer to get them to be able. It was a, it was Xerox. It was a document um, storage type thing. 24 hours. They converted it to basically using like Azure Kubernetes services, 10 minutes, 10 minutes spin up. So um, really cool stuff. But with that, you know, hope you enjoyed this, this particular episode of the shared between coding blocks and six figure dev. And, you know, as always, if you haven't already, please, you know, go leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from, you know, um, Definitely go check out the Six Figure Dev. If you haven't checked them out, check us out at CodingBlocks.net. Got anything else? Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks to Alan. Thanks to CodingBlock guys for, for allowing me to come on and, and share some of the time. Um, really looking forward to doing more in the future. Yeah, definitely, man. And and by the way, he's got, he's got a test-driven development book out that we gave away previously. So if you would like to get your hands and learn some test-driven development, he's got a great way for it. We'll leave a link down in the show notes for that as well. Yeah, Practical Test-Driven Development with C-Sharp 7 is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and anywhere you might get your books. Excellent. All right, with that, we'll catch you on the next episode. All right, and with that, even though he's absent, let's head into Alan's favorite. Well, I guess he wasn't really absent, is he? He's 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 here in your ears, but he's not present as we record this portion of it. So anyways, let's head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, I'm going to start us off this time. I want to tell you about CodeSandbox.io which um, Dennis and I introduced me to this. Um, so you should go follow him on Twitter because he has been uh, blogging and doing a lot of really cool things with it. And what it is, is an online code editor. So when I first kind of heard about it, I immediately dismissed it because like I have, you know, code editors that I really like and that are really powerful. And so why would I ever mess with this? But what this does is give you like an instant setup and sandbox for doing like really common types of applications like Vue or React or Angular or a bunch of other logos I don't even recognize. So you can go in here and, and um, just click a button and it gives you a React app set up with uh, a little editor on the left there with a couple files. And then on the right is a sample of what it looks like. So it's literally a, an entire coding environment and feedback and working kind of setup all in your browser. And the editing is really nice. But what I really like is that I can one-click share it. So if I'm like messing with something and I, I don't want to mess with the hosting, I want to show, say, Outlaw, like, hey, check out this cool little you know app idea I have, whatever, just a little prototype. I can click it, share it over to you without having to go, say, you know what I would do otherwise, which would be like go to GitHub, set up something, mess around with GitHub pages in order to get it hosted so I don't have to like – buy a website just to show somebody a quick example. So it's kind of like a, I would say like an evolution on something like a, a code pen or, or something like that. And it's actually really handy. Uh, you can host a bunch of stuff up there for free. And then, I mean, it's kind of got its hosting built in there too. And it also works really nice with Netflix too, if you want to kind of take it another step forward. So you should go check it out and go make some cool stuff really quickly. Yeah. To add on to you, you saying it was like a code pen. I mean, like one of the ones I heard that I happened to find was uh, Mario Kart. And there's a working Mario Kart. You can actually see the code that they've already done, but you can play Mario Kart. Yeah, that's awesome. And you can um, add an NPM package, stuff like that. I mean, it's like just like kind of having an environment just set up on the website for you. And uh, it looks like uh, if I'm reading this number right, I'm going to double check it because it sounds too kind of crazy. But uh, they have 619,000 React websites uh, hosted on CodeSandbox.io. Wow. Which are uh, that sounds ridiculous to me, but um, that's what it looks like. So, uh, if I'm wrong, let me know in the comments. All right. Well, man, now it's going to make mine sound kind of boring in comparison. But 
I found this, uh, we were at Atlanta code camp recently and there was this, uh, one, uh, one of the tracks that I was on, they, uh, it was machine learning kind of conversation and they were, there was, uh, one of the slides was from the psychic scikit learn site, uh, about that pan, uh, Python package. And it was really cool cheat sheet. We've talked about cheat sheets, but this was like an algorithm cheat sheet. And uh, let me put a link in here for you so you can follow along with me, Joe. But All right. um, if you're trying to decide, you know, basically the way the sidekick has this titled is choosing the right estimator. So basically the idea is like, hey, you're trying to, you want to use uh, machine learning in your application, but which algorithm do you use, right? And so uh, they have this algorithm cheat sheet and it's really cool. It'll walk you through like, um, uh, like a decision, a decision, no, not a decision tree. What's it called? Um, ah, dang it. It's like a flow chart kind of. Yeah. 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 Where it'll be like, yes, no questions. And it's like, Hey, if you have less than 50 samples, then you can't even proceed, go get more data and then come back. <laughs> right. But the cool thing though, is that like you can click on these algorithms and you can see the, the math behind it. Like what, what that algorithm actually means. Um, so like once you get into a particular area, like if you're trying to do classification, right, it'll say like, hey, here's that, here are the good algorithms, you know, you're, you're probably like best fit, best choice kind of algorithms for uh, classification type problems that you might want to solve, right? And in your different algorithms that you could use and why you might want to use one of them. So it's a really cool uh, little cheat sheet there. And I thought I would share that out. That's really nice. And it's fun to look at too. It looks kind of like um, a amoeba or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So with that, uh, we hope you enjoyed Alan and John's talk and, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher and more using your favorite podcast app. Uh, be sure to leave us a review. You can head to www.codingblocks.net slash review where you can find some helpful links there. And while you're at coding blocks, check out our show notes, our examples and discussion. Um, you can hit any one of the, show notes and, and participate in the discussion we encourage that as well yeah and uh, send your feedback questions and rants to the Slack channel codingblocks.slack.com and uh, make sure to follow us on at Twitter uh, at codingblocks or head over to codingblocks.net and you'll find all our social links up at the top of the page and Alan do you have anything else to add nope that's it you guys are awesome take it easy <laughs> <laughs> take it easy uh, lemon squeezy I don't know what, what, like, how does Alan say goodbye? <laughs> I think that's right. It'll do. That is something that he would say for sure. It'll do.